Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is a special podcast presentation from 700WLW.com. This is Sunday Morning Sports Talk with Ken Brew On Demand. Big One presents Sunday Morning Sports Talk with your host, Ken Brew, on 700WLW, The Big One. You know, I always like to begin with good news, particularly on a holiday weekend where the glass should always be half full, not half empty. You want some good news? We are less than four weeks away. Four weeks away from the start of Bengals training camp. On the 29th, the entire squad will be on the field frolicking. And the Bengals will be looking ahead to what a lot of people think will be a championship season. I say that because we both know, you and I know, that it's been kind of rough around here the last few months. The Reds have been, well, they've been the Reds. It's not been good. Although last night was a glimpse of what could happen if things go well, if things go perfectly, if you can get good pitching and timely hitting. But by and large, it's been a bummer. But four weeks from right now, we will be immersed in Bengals training camp. Now, opinions on this team are all over the place. Some people think it's going to be a robust year. Other people think the Steelers are going to regroup and re-win and win big in 2016. Hard to predict in the middle of July exactly what's going to happen in September, October, and November, but suffice to say it would appear that their division would produce at least two playoff teams. That would be the thinking. I could see the Bengals and the Steelers both going to the playoffs again this year. But it's the, it's, the, it's, it's the anticipation of it, I think, that's going to carry us through this next month. And I saw something this week that struck my interest. Something that, uh, again, is that, that mind candy stuff you find at this time of the year because football writers really have nothing else to write and talk about. They don't. Anybody that covers the NFL for a living, or college football for that matter, this is, this is their dead time. So they've got to make a lot of stuff up. They've got to rank things. They've got to align things. They've got to do the best of, the worst of. I'm going to get into some of that today because it's, it's fun. It's just fun to look at what other people think about something you feel very strongly about. But I saw this this week in USA Today, and it was, it was interesting. Rating the best head coach and quarterback combinations in the National Football League. Now, if somebody walked up to you today, maybe at a picnic, and said to you, what, who do you think is the best head coach-quarterback combination in the NFL? What would your answer be? would be Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. I mean, that is, that is the quintessential, that is the Bart Starr, Vince Lombardi of this millennium. It's that good. There have been, just, there have been several throughout the course of time that have just been off the charts great. Starr and Lombardi. Bill Walsh and Joe Montana. And this is this answer to it now, and in large sense, it may be even better than the two I just mentioned. 
But it gets interesting after number two. Who would you think number two would be? Any idea? And by the way, this was done by USA Today, and it was done by a writer named Steve Ruiz. He thinks the second-best quarterback-coach combination in the National Football League is the Packers, Mike McCarthy, and Aaron Rodgers. Ahead of Sean Payton and Drew Brees, ahead of Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson. Now, I think all of it is subjective, and all of it is one writer's opinion, and all of it is great debate. I'm not sure I would put McCarthy and Aaron Rodgers number two. I'm not sure that Seahawks, Carroll, and Wilson shouldn't be up there at number two. He says of that, he says, Carroll deserves a lot of credit for realizing what he had in Wilson. Instead of trying to change Wilson, Carroll built the offensive identity around a scrambling quarterback and let his young quarterback naturally develop into more of a pocket passer. Now, obviously, the Packers have something. McCarthy and Rodgers have something that they're still looking for, still want and see longevity with a quarterback, longevity with a coach. I think it's interesting. Again, I think it's handy. Bruce Arians and Carson Palmer, number seven on the list, right after Cam Newton and Ron Rivera. Cam Newton and Ron Rivera are six. Bruce Arians, Carson Palmer are seven. I know what you're saying right now. Where are the Bengals? Where's Marvin Lewis? Where's Andy Dalton? Number 11. And as Ruiz writes, sure, the two have yet to produce a playoff win, but getting the Bengals to the postseason five seasons in a row is quite the achievement. It will be interesting to see how they do after suffering some key losses this offseason. Number 11, so in essence, top third of the NFL. So here's my question on all of this. As you look at the Cincinnati Bengals since their inception and through all of their coaches and all of their quarterbacks, are we not witnessing now the best quarterback-coach combination in the history of this franchise? Now, I know it's going to drive Marvin Lewis haters crazy because Marvin Lewis has hung around a long time. A lot of people think too long. There's been no Super Bowl. There's been no playoff win. His teams in big-time night games don't seem to do very well. But extract that passion from the discussion. Have there been better quarterbacks on this team than Andy Dalton? The short answer and the correct answer, yes, there have been. Ken Anderson is the greatest quarterback in the history of this franchise. He is one of the greatest quarterbacks in the history of the National Football League. And as I continue to say, it is one of the grave injustices in the history of sports that this man is not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He is the greatest quarterback in the history of this franchise. The greatest coach in the history of this franchise is up for debate. Historically, in the history of football, it would be Paul Brown, but maybe not so much in the history of this franchise. This team went to the Super Bowl under Forrest Gregg. It went to the Super Bowl under Sam Weish. But are Sam Weish and Forrest Gregg, despite that achievement, do they have a greater track record than Marvin Lewis? They don't have his longevity, but look what Lewis has done over the last five years. And again, we go back to 2011 all the time because at that moment in January of that year, that dynamic that runs that franchise changed. So this guy has Marvin Lewis and Andy Dalton as the 11th best 
coach-quarterback combination in all of the NFL. And the players and coaches that he puts before those 11, I don't have really any disagreement with. I mean, there are some interesting things that I'm looking at and, and saying, okay, you got Dalton and you got Marvin at number 11. I'm not completely convinced that as I look at who's in front of them, that, for example, Andy Reid and Alex Smith is a better combination or that Chuck Pagano and Andrew Luck are a better combination. But Lewis and Dalton, I think if you extract your feelings about Marvin, I think if you look rationally at what Andy Dalton has done, I think the answer to, is this the best coach-quarterback combination in the history of this franchise? I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. Four weeks from now, we'll be talking about football strategy. Four weeks from now, we'll be talking about what's going on in the NFL, and particularly in the Cincinnati Bengals training camp. A team that has been picked by money to not just win the division, but play deeply into the playoffs. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. We've heard it before. It gives me a headache. I understand. I understand. I made a comment here yesterday, and it it, it, it got the ire of one of our listeners. Guy's name is uh, Bob. And he was upset that at the end of my show yesterday afternoon, I said that as the Reds look ahead to fixing this organization, and again, the rebuilding has not begun yet. Okay, let's, let's be perfectly clear about this. It has not begun yet. I said when the trade deadline, as we get closer to it, in fact, it should be right now when intense discussions are going on between teams for players. The Reds should make available everybody on their 25-man roster. Everybody. And Bob got all bent out of shape because I said that and that I would be giving up on the rebuilding process and some of these younger players are players that they should not trade. He doesn't mention who those players are, but the fact of the matter is, if indeed you are looking ahead to 2018, and right now that seems to be really really optimistic that this team will be good, contending good in 2018, if you're really looking ahead that far, Why wouldn't you make everybody on your roster available right now? If you can make a trade that will make your team stronger by 2018, why would not you do it? Who are you going to hold on to? Who are you going to hold on to? Eugenio Suarez? Tucker Barnhart? Adam Duvall? Billy Hamilton? Who? Will those players be part of the answer in 2018 if it comes that quickly? Quite possibly, yes. In the case of Barnhart, it it might be an emphatic yes. In the case of Duvall, we don't know. Nice half of a season. Older player, we don't know. Will Zach Cozart be here? Aging player, not making a lot of money. In three seasons, two seasons, we don't know. But what we do know is if a team has a specific need right now and they want to deal with you to take Cozart or or to take Barnhart or to take Suarez and give you something back in return, 
whose payday will be two years down the road, you have to do it. It's your responsibility. Look, I've said from the top, these are the most tradable players the Reds have right now. In no particular order, these are the most tradable players they have. Jay Bruce, Brandon Phillips, Dan Straley. Those are the guys you could deal right now. Phillips would have to give his blessing. There are gymnastics you have to work with him to get him out of here into a new team. Get all of that. Understand all of that. But those are the most tradable players you have. But if somebody comes knocking on your door and offers you a package that's overwhelming and you have to send them Billy Hamilton or you have to send them Tucker Barnhart or you have to send them Adam Duvall or you have to send them Anthony Desclafani, you have to consider it. You have to consider it. And therefore, if I'm running the show down there, it's open for business. Tell me what you want, tell me what you need, and then I'll tell you if I can deal with you. But the name of the game is to get better. There should be no untouchables on this team. I know they can't trade Votto. The contract is such that they can't. They can't trade Homer Bailey, although he pitched last night down in Louisville and threw okay, not great, okay, a couple of innings. But you can't trade him, he's hurt. You're not going to trade... Devin Mezzarocco, he's hurt. You can't trade him. But you should listen to everybody who's interested on anybody that's on your current roster. This It's just called being prudent about how you go about your business. All right, on the show today, uh, I, I again, when I'm putting these shows together, I try to make it as eclectic and interesting as possible. Sometimes I succeed, sometimes I don't. I saw a real interesting story this week on BaseballProspectus.com. A writer, I've had him on before, Rob Maines, went back and reconstructed the storylines for every single team in the 1971 season. He picked 71 because, well, it's a, you know it's a year that works. It's 45 years ago. He picked 71 because it, it was before the start of free agency and before things just started going haywire in baseball. So he's going to stop by and talk about what he found out about that 71 season and some of the things, even about your Reds, who were not very good that year, might shock you. We're going to get into more football talk. John Costco from uh, ProFootballFocus.com. I asked John to join me. He has gone and done research that would lead him to believe that this could be not just a very good year for Andy Dalton, but an off-the-chart year for Andy Dalton, and he'll explain why. Also on the show, and this just shows that at this time of the year, a lot of play, a lot of writers have a lot of time on their hands. Steve Lassen, Stephen Lassen, writes for uh, one of the good websites that's out there, one of the websites that's out there that uh, really chronicles uh, college football. He has rated every single college football coach, every single one of them, every single Division I coach will tell you where not just Urban Meyer, who I think we kind of figure out where he falls, but Tommy Tuberville and Mark Stoops and where they fall, in his opinion, in the hierarchy of college football. Bill Bender is going to join us from the Sporting News. Bill's a good Ohio University boy. He has taken each of the 32 NFL teams, each of the 32 and has deemed one player 
as the most overrated player since 2000 on every one of those NFL teams. And finally, we'll get into some uh, Major League Baseball trade talk. The deadline now is less than a month away, and it remains evident that Jay Bruce is the most coveted player out there right now on the free on the uh, trade market. Well, what are the Reds waiting for? So that's my boat. It's loaded. It's great having you with us. I know it's very it's not very nice outside, but it's really good in here. Trust me, it's going to be fun as we cruise till noon on the home of your Cincinnati Reds, 700 WLW. 700 WLW. July 4th weekend. All about America. All about Americans. You, me, Tom Petty. Written by Petty and Mike Campbell. Both are just killing it on guitars on this song. So is bass guitarist Ron Blair. Come on. Way back in 77, this was a huge hit for Petty. Allegedly about a girl who committed suicide on the campus of the University of Florida. Petty denies it, said that wasn't it. I'm going to go with his story. He wrote the song. I'll tell you, we should all thank former Eagle Don Felder for teaching Tom Petty how to play the guitar all those years ago down in Florida. Memory serves me right. When Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers played Riverbend about six, seven years ago, I think they closed their encore with this. Horace well, thought the guitarists here were kind of like Diddley and uh, Barry. Huh? You know, a little like Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley. Petty and the rest of the Heartbreakers. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2002. And on that induction night, they played this song. One season in baseball. We'll go back 45 years and see just how different the game was. Next on 700 WLW. 9.35 on this Sunday morning. Good morning. Sunday morning sports talk. Ken Brew, as always, proud to be with you. If you'd like to participate by email, the email address is ken at kenbrew.com. Email here from John. We were talking about the best Bengals head coach and quarterback combination in the history of the team. The best head coach and combination in the history of the team. And uh, John writes in, who's kidding who? Dave Shula is the greatest. He and David Klingler, the greatest QB to wear a Bengals uniform. Always count on John for some humor. Uh, if you'd like to follow along and participate by Twitter, it's the at sign in my name, Ken Brew. Just that, K-E-N-B-R-O-O. Sign up today. Get my pithy little comments throughout the day. Uh, so, okay, so this was an interesting study. And, and, again, one of those things where you sit down and you look at it and you say, why is this guy writing about this? But then when you read it, you find out it's really a pretty cool topic. This is on BaseballPerspectus.com. Rob Maines is the writer. He was with us maybe a month, six weeks ago to talk about uh, an entirely different topic. But he wrote this week, one entire season of baseball from the 1970s. And he chose 
1971 season and did kind of a thumbnail sketch for each team. It was not a great year for the Reds. They were 79 and 83 that year, and they finished uh, well out of first place. They finished fourth in the uh, National League West behind the Giants, the Dodgers, the Braves, and just ahead of the Astros and the Padres. But I wanted to get Rob on today to talk about just why he chose that year and what he found out. So without further ado, from BaseballProspectus.com, let's bring in our good buddy Rob Maines. Rob, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Ken. Why 1971? Well, I was uh, sort of inspired by a newsletter that I read, the Joe Sheehan newsletter. Oh, yeah who commented that in 1971, Manny Sanguian, who uh, Reds fans probably remember from his days sure. with the Pirates, in that season he drew um, just six unintentional walks the entire season, as in 1971. And Sheehan said that, he said, I would dearly like to experience one entire season of baseball from the 1970s. Yeah. So I decided to look at that very season, 19. 19- 71 and just kind of highlight the ways in which the game has changed from uh, the 2016 version. And it's amazing as we go through this just what you've what you've resurrected. I had forgotten how good Baltimore was. I mean, they were when you talk about the great teams, particularly in this town, you talk about the 75-76 Reds or the 27 Yankees perhaps, but the 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 71 Orioles are right up there. They're there with the 76 Yankees and the 84 Tigers. I think people forget largely because of recent events, how good the Orioles were back then. They were just lights out. Yeah, those late 69 through 71 Orioles, they kind of dominated in every category that you could imagine. And one of the things I always thought was amazing about that team is nobody seemed to ever get hurt. You know, you had Belanger, Robinson, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, both Robinsons, Bukpal. All those guys seemed to be in the lineup every day. And then they had the rotation that I believe was the next year won. They had four 20-game winners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and on the western side of that argument is is Oakland, perhaps in the history of baseball the most mismanaged team in history. But here they were with Charlie Finley as the owner. They went 101 games in Vita Blue who was a Cincinnati Red, I think, for about 45 seconds until the deal was squashed. 39 starts in 312 innings. I mean, that just, those, are, those are crazy numbers right there. Particularly given that he turned 22 huh. uh, in July of that year. So this is a 21-year-old arm that they're putting all that, those innings on. And what I found was that um, since 2009 in Major League Baseball, We've seen 10 pitchers, 21 or younger, uh, throw 80 or more innings. Mm-hmm. And in who, and in 1971, there were 11 in that year alone who did it. Wow. Wow. And, 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 and the pitching was really the most startling thing I saw here. The, the number of complete games that were thrown back then compared to the number of complete games that have been thrown in in, in Major League Baseball last year and so far this year. The Reds, for example, had 27 complete games, and those were the fewest of any team in the National League. I guess maybe it goes back to, Rob, that, that players back then were chattel, and, and they belonged to that team so long as that team wanted that player, and so it just used and in some cases abused pitching. Where now, I think owners, with the amount of money they're paying these players, pitchers in particular, they're viewed more as commodities, and they want to return on that investment. But it's just startling when you look at the number of innings pitched back then. It, it, it's almost, it, it almost seems like it's abusive. 
Yeah. It, I, now, part of the mitigation of that, of course, was I think that there weren't uh, one through nine as many tough outs in the lineup then as there were today. But it, compared to today, you're right, that's the biggest contrast I found. There were an awful lot of teams that were strictly on a four-man rotation, and Billy Martin's Detroit Tigers even took it a step for, further. Their most durable pitcher was Mickey Lolich, and he pitched every four days, mm-hmm. regardless of whether they were off days. The guy wound up having 45 starts in the season. Yeah, and, and, and you point out here, with regards to pitching, 32% of the starts that were made that, that year in 71 were on three or fewer days rest. That is an inordinate number. Yeah, and you ne- virtually never see it anymore. No, no. I mean, I just, it's, it's, it was staggering. Rob Maines, BaseballPerspectus.com. This is, this is really a fascinating article. A couple of other things that stand out. The length of games. The games back then just flew. Most were, were accomplished under two and a half hours. And if it went two hours and 35, two, th- two hours and 40 minutes, there was something wrong in that game. Uh, uh, why do you think the pace was so much quicker back then? Well, one of the reasons is I think commercial breaks between innings were shorter. But on top of that, there were a lot fewer pitching changes that mm-hmm. slowed things down. And all the, uh, you know, the walking around the mound and the stepping out of the batter's box and all that sort of thing that's common today, you didn't see that back then. Um, we had, I don't know if you had a chance to see uh, the seventh game of the 1960 World Series that was unearthed a couple years ago. Just watching that game, batters didn't step out between pitches. And so that just made the move, yeah. the game move a lot faster. And- With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC. The dead time of long commercial breaks and multiple pitching changes like there are today. 71, the longest game of the year was two hours and 42 minutes. And uh, I think the average, uh, what do you have here, 11.5% of the games this year have uh, have taken two hours and 36 minutes or less. So you can just see the disparity in times back then. Another thing that, that you point out, and this was really, really interesting, is salary. In '71. Now, you mentioned that all teams did not have salary records from that year or did not share them. But the Twins' payroll was, what, $650,000 for the entire team. That, that would equate to about $4 million right now. That's, I mean, we're, we're, was it all because of the economics of the times? Was it all because of the fact that there was no free agency? What, why, why such deflated figure numbers? Yeah, I think the free agency was probably the biggest part of it, that there was just a much larger 
uh, percentage of revenues were being retained by the teams, but also there wasn't as much money in the sport in general. Um, you didn't have the TV contracts like you have today. You didn't obviously didn't have MLB advanced media. Um, I remember going to games where you didn't see seems like a third of the people in the stadium wearing replica jerseys. I think there's just a lot more merchandise sales, mm-hmm. um, a lot more outside revenues, as well as much higher attendance now and uh, much more lucrative TV contracts. All that's brought more money into the game, and then the free agency and arbitration and whatnot have brought a larger slice of the pie to the players. You know, I was researching a story that I did on you know, last weekend. We had Pete Rose in town for his Jersey retirement and induction into the team's Hall of Fame. I was doing uh, some research to the uh, demographics of baseball right now. And uh, obviously, the Ford, Forbes.com published something it was a year or two ago. But oh, it, it, baseball, overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly older, overwhelmingly the richest fan base of the four major sports. But the key being older, overwhelmingly older and overwhelmingly white. And my theory was that if, if Rob Manfred had played the Pete Rose thing different back in December and had welcomed him back in whatever kind of limited basis it was, here is the greatest ambassador this game has ever known that I think would be able to sell the game, particularly to younger fans and particularly to a more diverse group of fans. And then I see your story, where you, on September the 1st of 1971, the Pittsburgh Pirates started a lineup that was overwhelmingly, not overwhelmingly, it was exclusively African-American or Latin American. And I'm thinking to myself, there's another anomaly. You would never find something like that in 19 or in 2016 because baseball really and truly is having a very difficult time getting into different kinds of, of, of groups, be it ethnic, be it religion, be it whatever. I mean, there's another way the game was different from back then. That that was startling to me. Was it startling to you? Yeah, they're, they're more um, – I, actually, I, I remember that, uh, that that Pirates team. Yeah, I remember um, every one of these guys. Yeah, and largely it's uh, the decline of African Americans in the game. There are more foreign players, both from Latin America and obviously from Asia now, than there were then. But uh, it's become much wider overall. Yeah, I mean, Rennie Stennett, second base, great player. Uh, everybody knew Sanguin in, in this town because of the rivalry with the Pirates. And Al Oliver. Al Oliver could bop the ball, play first base, and, of course, Willie Stargell. I just – it's 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 a much – different game right now i think it's a better game if you're a player obviously financially but for the fan i'm not sure it's a better game in your opinion is it a better game for the fan i think that the quality of play is better now than it ever has been um as someone who watches the games um the stadium experience, I think, is overall better because the stadiums are a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, I There is a lack of diversity on the field. On the other hand, I think that um, the influx of foreign players is somewhat compensated for that. You've got a lot of exciting players from both the Far East and uh, from Latin America. And, you know, I like baseball enough that uh, – the time that it takes to sit through a game doesn't bother me. Um, obviously, when you're sitting at home and you've got MLB TV and you can switch from game to game, uh, when a pitching change comes in, that makes it a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. But, Ken, you know, you and I are pretty intense fans of the game. I think that the more casual fan is 
uh, where Manfred is justifiably concerned about uh, trying to get more interest. Yeah, I guess. I don't know if that's good or that's bad. I suppose you need that to make your sport financially viable, but... uh... Uh, this this is a great read. Anybody that has any interest in history and baseball should read it. It's right now on BaseballPerspectives.com by Rob Maines. Rob, thank you so much for your time today here on 700 WLW. Great talking to you again, Ken. And you did not mishear us. The Reds pitching staff had 27 complete games in 1971. It was the fewest in the National League. Fewest. And now in the distance... It's time play of the game. Ah, yes, the highlight of every day here on the big one. If you were listening last night to Marty and Jim, and for the love of Jim Scott, why would you not be? You know what the play of the game was, but now you need to be the seventh correct caller. Ralph, he said the seventh correct caller. At 749-7000. No! 749-3700. I just tell you if you're paying attention. 749-3700. We'll have the play in the winner next on 700 WLW. Now. Saturday's play of the game sounded remarkably like this. Pitch. Ball hit into right center. Uh-oh. That's down for a hit for Tucker Barnhart. Yeah. One run will score. Oh. A second run will score Come as the on. right fielder Harper bobbled the ball it. and it went to his right towards center field. And he went left. Hamilton hustles over to third oh. and Tucker Barnhart for the second straight night has had a three hit night. This one drives in a run and a second run also scored and the Reds now lead it six to four and that was the play of the game. The seventh correct quarter was John Reef. John is going to be legend up in Fairfield. Yes, he will be. John gets tickets to a future Reds game, and you got a chance to win all over again tomorrow morning. Right here on 700 WLW. Coming up on 10 o'clock, after the news at the top of the hour. Be joined by... Uh, one of the writers for ProFootballFocus.com, John Costco, who thinks Andy Dalton is just going to be off the charts this year, and his stats from last year is the reason why. So we'll get into that, break it down, why Andy Dalton should be in, the, in, in, in line for that kind of season. By the way, I didn't want to let the hour pass without mentioning another great night for FC Cincinnati. I don't know if, if you've made it down to any of those games, but the atmosphere is flat-out intoxicating. It is intoxicating. And uh, the, the crowd is infectious. Uh, the game is terrific, fun to watch. And Jimmy McLaughlin did it again. He'll be with me tonight at 1135 on Meyer Sports of All Sorts on Cincinnati's 9 on your side. Straight ahead, the Red Rifle again. It will be the Red Rifle and not the Red BB Gun, or whatever J.J. Watt called him this year. We'll tell you why on 700 WLW. Now, the Big One presents Sunday Morning Sports Talk with your host, Ken Brew, on 700 WLW, the Big One. Hey, welcome back. It is 10.07 on this Sunday morning, and good morning. 
Note from Wimbledon, Serena Williams has rolled on to round four. I believe that was her 300th major win. So we uh, we congratulate uh, Serena Williams for rolling on to the fourth round at uh, at Wimbledon. As I mentioned earlier today, this is the countdown to Bengals and NFL. Training camps will open in some cases here in just a couple of weeks. The Bengals in camp in less than four weeks. And then it starts to rock and roll the NFL season. Now, obviously, expectations are high. You and I both know it's that way at this time of the year. Even if the Bengals were coming off a lousy year, there would be buzz and anticipation, and everybody would be really, really up and ready to go for the season. It's just the way it works around here. I call it the Cincinnati cycle. Just when the Reds start to swoon, you have people getting excited about the Bengals, and when the Bengals swoon, you have people getting excited about college basketball, and when that's over, they get people excited about the Reds, and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. But this year, I think more than any other, people are really looking forward. I think you are. You know you are. You're looking forward to this season. You look back on the end of last season, and if Andy Dalton had not been hurt in that game against the Steelers here, if he indeed had been allowed to finish that game, you figure they win that game, you figure they're probably the number one seed in the playoffs with a game at home and a first-week bye, and then who knows what happens. All the big swingers have got to come to your place and beat you here if they want to get to the Super Bowl. Tremendous advantage if that had not happened. And I found it amusing when Andy Dalton was hurt and A.J. McCarron came on and played relatively well how people were clamoring for some sort of decision that had to be made. Who was the number one quarterback? Would it be Andy Dalton? You just give it back to him, and and shouldn't it be A.J. McCarron? Well, it never got to a, to a decision point. The season had ended. But now here is a statistical study that has been done by ProFootballFocus.com. I like these guys for a number of reasons. One, drill down about as far as you can drill down to see exactly what happened in every football play in every game of every season. They analyze a player every game, every football season, every single play. Think about the work that goes into that because you have conceivably upwards of 50 players on every team on any Sunday involved in a game. I like them for that reason. The other reason I like them is their guys come out and they explain complex things in a very, I think, a very understandable way. Now, they have a writer, John Costco, who broke down what Andy Dalton did last year. And why Andy Dalton, if you look at statistically what he did, should have you really excited about what Andy Dalton can or should do in 2016. So without further ado, and I think I teed that up well enough for John Costco of ProFootballFocus.com, and he joins us now to talk about Andy Dalton and his prospects for 2016. John, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Ken. Thanks for having me. So Dalton had a really good year last year that was short-circuited by his thumb injury. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But your thinking is, had Dalton remained healthy... We wouldn't be having these conversations in Cincinnati like, when are the Bengals ever going to win a playoff game? You think it would have happened last January? Definitely. Uh, Dalton was having a career year, uh, only ended by that, that thumb injury against Pittsburgh. Uh, had he been able to play they, uh, you know, the rest of the season and gone into the playoffs playing against Pittsburgh in that first game, uh, he definitely could have led the Bengals to victory um, and not have that the controversy that ended at the you know happened at the end of the game. Your stats, your research show that the reason why Andy Dalton is is progressing as a quarterback is because of his ability to react well under pressure. That seems to be the number one cause for whether or not a pro football quarterback makes it or doesn't make it. Where did you think? Where do you think that comes from? Because it's an inherent talent that quarterbacks have. Why do you think Dalton has this? Well, it's something that does get developed over time. Uh, if you look at earlier in his career, he did struggle under pressure. Um, he, we have a stat called adjusted completion percentage, which is uh, every instead of just a normal completion percentage, you're taking away uh, drops. You're adding drops to completions, but then also uh, removing spikes, throwaways, uh, hit by uh, defender while he's throwing it. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he steadily rose throughout his whole career, and then, and then last year he took a big leap from you know 2014 he was at 57 and a half percent just completion percentage and he went to 68 and a half percent. So he was just making you know he he showed throughout his career he's making better decisions, um, throwing throwing it more accurately in in pressure situations. And then with the comfort level he had with the AJ Green, Tyler Eifert was was healthy finally for a year, um, and his running backs were were productive and he had Marvin Jones who was definitely an underrated uh, player for the Bengals last year that that all came together in 2015 uh, and allowed him to to make that leap yeah but here's the, here's the big here are the big numbers right here in 2000 under pressure he throws eight interceptions six touchdown passes in 2015 it's three touchdown passes no interceptions it seemed to me the growth point for him from 14 to 15 was not trying to make a play when the play wasn't there. He took uh, 19 sacks last year. He had, I think, 24, 25 the year before. He's understanding, I think, that, that if a play isn't there, don't force the ball. I think that's the biggest growth step for him. Exactly. You know, you look at, you look at the best quarterbacks in the league. They, they make plays when they have to, uh, but if the play isn't there, they're, they're not – they're not forcing the ball in, into double coverage or, you know, where the receiver isn't open. That's, that's where he excelled most last year was just making the good decision. Mm-hmm. And because also, you know, Hugh Jackson last year was implement. you know, he, Dalton's always been one of the best or at the top of the NFL in terms of throwing it quickly, you know, the, the quick passing game. The percentage of throws under 2.5 seconds uh, has risen throughout his career. Yeah. Um, and you know, in 2014, he was at 67 and a half percent. Last year, he was at 68 and a half percent. But even earlier in his career, he was at, you know, just at 60 percent, which 
this shows that he's making better decisions more quickly uh, and then eating, eating it if he's not if the, if the play's not there. John Costco is our guest. He's with ProFootballFocus.com, uh, which, by the way, now is based in Cincinnati. And, and if you're not familiar with the website, you might have seen it, but the metrics of it are such that they grade every player on every play in every game for an entire season. It is really about as far down as you can drill to see what a player does, not just on a yearly basis or a game-by-game basis, but on a play-by-play basis. And John is one of their writers. You know, John, uh, there's a lot of buzz about the Steelers this year. Uh, some magazines have picked them to win the, the division. We've talked about Hugh Jackson. He's not here anymore. The whole defensive side of the football, with the exception of the coordinator, Paul Gunther, is, is gone from last year. There seems to be a little bit of a transition going on here again just a couple of years after there was a transition when Jay Gruden and Mike Zimmer left. When you factor all of that into it and you factor in that Pittsburgh seems to have gotten better in the offseason, does Pittsburgh still come in as your number one choice to win the AFC North, or is it Cincinnati? Um, we, we like Cincinnati. Um, we actually think they had a better offseason than the, than the Steelers did. The, the, the Bengals got a couple of steals in the draft, one of them being Andrew Billings in the fourth round. Um, we had him as graded as our number 22 yeah. overall prospect. He's a, so John, he should be able to come in. John, he's an amazing person. I, I, I have seen him in some of the workouts and interviewed him at his locker. He is about as thick of a player as they come. He is just, there doesn't seem to be any body fat, and he just looks like a fire hydrant. I, I can imagine what that must be like now for offensive lines if he lines up next to Geno Atkins. Uh, you're right. I think he was yeah. a steal. Yes, exactly. We, I mean, it shows on tape. He is an, he's an, uh, a monster against the run. He will destroy blockers, single team, double team. He penetrates bull rushes. Um, he is, and he's huge. So, uh, you know, he can, he can take over on where uh, Pecco was last year and, and immediately improve that defensive line, which was one of the best already mm-hmm. with uh, Geno Atkins. Um, so it's, he, you know, Getting yeah. him and will you, and, improve and, that. Right, and you couple that with what they did last year in the draft when they took uh, Fisher and they took Obwewe with their uh, number two and number one picks. Uh, they've got stability now across the offensive line, which plays into Dalton. And now it appears that they've taken the uh, the other side of it in, in terms of disrupting the quarterback. They've taken steps there. And I think you may differ with me. I think – I think you have to have players that either disrupt the other guy's quarterback or protect your quarterback because that's where you're going to win the majority of these games. And I'm with you. That's why I like the Bengals over the Steelers this year. Yeah, exactly. You know, disrupting the quarterback is a a huge part of the game. And, you know, you look at, I mean, just look at the Denver Broncos last year. Uh, Their offense was, you know, was struggled for pretty much the most of the year because Peyton Manning wasn't what he used to be. Right. But that defense carried them the entire year. And uh, that defense was, you know, generationally good. That was one of the greatest defenses that we'll see probably for the next probably 10 years. Yeah. But yeah. Um, they got after the quarterback and and disrupted what the quarterback did. And you know, look at the Bengals already had one of the best offensive lines in football last year um, with, uh, with Andre Smith leaving and then you know, putting in Agui and um, 
and Fisher, who will be at the sixth offensive lineman. They also drafting Christian Westerman, who we really liked out of Arizona State. Mm. That was a pretty good steal yeah, for them in the fifth shape. round. But they're, in good shape. they're solidifying that that protection for for Dalton, and they're they're getting players that will get after the quarterback yeah. in, in Billings, uh, and also uh, uh, obviously Geno Atkins. Yeah, has yeah, been doing that his whole career. But John's good stuff. Daily focus: Can Dalton build off his success in 2015? And the bigger question: Can he build off his number seven graded 2015 season? John Costco, ProFootballFocus.com, says absolutely yes. John, thanks for uh, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Ken. Uh, thanks for having me. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure. And that's the difference, uh, I think, between the two seasons last year and the year before is the interception didn't throw any interceptions under pressure year before that in 14 he threw eight so we'll eat the ball ball a little more try not to make plays happen i think he's gonna have a big year. if andy dalton stays healthy he's gonna have a big year and it gets back to what i said in the first hour marvin lewis and andy dalton are the best head coach quarterback combination in the history of the Cincinnati Bengals, the best. Have there been better quarterbacks? Yes. Have there been coaches that have taken this team to a Super Bowl? Yes. But the best combination is playing out right now at Paul Brown Stadium. 749-7000, 1-800-THE-BIG-ONE. We're back next. Sunday, morning sports talk rolls till noon. At the home of your Cincinnati Reds. And yes, it's the Reds and Nationals one more time today. The inside pitch begins at 1230 on 700 WLW. 700 WLW. The hardest working man in show business. From the movie Rocky IV. Song written by Dan Hartman and Charlie Midnight. Hit number four back at 85. Brown also had this on his album, Gravity. But it's the movie Rocky IV, most identified with this song. Godfather of Souls started his recording here in Cincinnati all those years in records. Really ushered in the era of the 33 and a third RPM album when he self-funded his Live at the Apollo album. James Brown would have been 86 if he were alive today. He uh, left this earth in 2006, Christmas Day, dying at the age of 73. The song was actually nominated for a Grammy. Two things about this song that stick out. There's a cat named T.M. Stevens on bass guitar singing background vocals. Just, just killer in this. The guy playing lead guitar on this song, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Stevie Ray Vaughan. Godfather's Soul made King Records. He did. One point in the history of recording. King Records was the fourth 
largest recording studio in the world. Another piece of our heritage is gone with the wind. Sunday, and be today, showers likely, high near 76. Tonight, showers and a possible thunderstorm. Some could be heavy. Low around 65 tonight, Independence Day, which would be tomorrow. By the way, has anybody seen the new Independence Day movie? I heard it was not good. Showers and thunderstorms high near 61. We're at 63 right now at the Tri-State Severe Weather Station, 700 WLW. You know, we talked about the NFL season starting here in less than a month. Training camp opens here, I think, the 28th, 29th. College football begins in about six weeks. Who are the top college football coaches in America? Not who's number one, who's number two. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I got a guy who ranked every single Division I college football coach, one through, I don't know how many, 128. Back to talk. I'm not going to give you all 128. We'd be here until next Tuesday. But we're going to talk about where Tommy Tuberville, where Mark Stoops, where Urban Meyer, where they all rank next on 700 WLW. 10.35 on this Saturday morning. If you got to be somewhere by 11, you got 25 minutes. See, I, I, I learned that. That's back timing. That's back timing. They taught us that at Ohio University. Well, they, that's one of the few things I remember. But, you know, it's been years. Welcome back to the show. Rip Roaring, first hour and a half, hour and a half to go. I, I'm uh, talking a little bit more about football today than I have in the past few weeks because we're getting closer to it. We, you can see it. You can feel it. You know, Fourth of July weekend, now you can actually see it in indefinable fashion, perhaps, but you can see it on the horizon. Anyway, there are certain magazines that you wait for when they come out to highlight what might happen in a coming football season. One is Phil Steele's magazine. Phil Steele is terrific. His magazine is off the charts good. I, I, I Phil Steele's. Athlon has been really and truly over the course of the last 15 years must read. It's one of those glossy magazines, but it does have really good information inside it, and they have terrific writers, one of whom is about to join us right now. There was a story that was on their website. It was earlier this week when I saw it. Uh, a writer, Steve Lassen, Stephen Lassen, ranked all of the 100, I think it's 100, 128 major college football coaches. And while some of these rankings are opinion, and, and rightfully so, while some of these are opinion, these polls, these rankings, Lassen went a little bit deeper into where he ranked these, these coaches. He said what factored into this is how well are the assistant coaches paid on these staffs. He says, for example, a staff of two of the nation's top coordinators could be a sign that the head coach is better at EO and may not be as strong in terms of developing game plans. 
Another factor, how is the coach with X's and O's? Can he coach recruits? Are the program's facilities on par with the rest of the conference? And much like assistance, a program needs good facilities to win big. He says if a team is winning at a high level with poor facilities and a small budget, it reflects positively on the head coach. And then other things like, has this coach been successful at more than one stop? Things like that. So there were metrics that he used to rank 1 through 128. No secret who's number one. It's Nick Saban at Alabama. You would be hard-pressed not to put him at the top of the list. But where do the rest of these guys fall? For some highlights of that, let's bring in from Athlons. Again, a magazine that I like a lot. Let's bring in from Athlons the uh, writer of this article and one of their editors, Stephen Lassen. Stephen, welcome to the show. Hey, Ken. It's great to talk to you. I appreciate you having me on. You know, uh, this list is uh, one of the more challenging things that we do at Athlon Sports. But, hey, it's one of those things that uh, helps count down to the start of the season. Yeah, yeah. Now, here I'm looking at this list. At number 59 is Tommy Tuberville at the University of Cincinnati. And uh, some are saying this could be a make-or-break year for Tuberville. Nine and four, first uh, two seasons. He went to seven and six last year. He had some issues with injuries, but by and large, his team last year underachieved. This is a big year for this man, is it not? It really is. You know, I think the first word that comes to my mind when I think about Tommy Tuberville is he's a solid coach who's won a lot of games at different programs. You know, uh, whether that's Ole Miss, Auburn, or Texas Tech, and and now Cincinnati. You know, I think when you look at Cincinnati, they went into last season as one of the favorites to win the American Athletic Conference. Didn't quite meet expectations. You know, there was the quarterback carousel between Hayden Moore and, and Gunnar Keel. And, of course, I think a big part of Cincinnati's problems last year were injuries and the turnovers. You know, minus 19 turnover margin certainly hurt that uh, the win total going from 9 to, to 7. But I think it's a big year for Tuberville just in the sense that the American Athletic Conference has some really good coaches mm-hmm. and some programs that are moving forward. You know, Tom Herman at Houston, arguably one of the, the hottest commodities in the coaching circuit. He'll be a name that at the end of this year Power 5 programs will look at. I think Tulane hired a great coach and, and Willie Fritz. Mm-hmm. You also look Temple and South Florida have improved. So the league is improving around Cincinnati, and I think it's important for Cincinnati uh, to get back to that 9-10 win uh, type of season and also push for that East Division title. You know, I was uh, the big story here is whether or not they get invited to join the Big 12 if the Big 12 does indeed decide it's going to expand. If it doesn't expand and they remain in one of those other five conferences, the chasm between the haves and the have-nots is growing here. I mean, it really is. There are a lot of people, I think, around here that might want to stay home and watch Ohio State, for example, play Wisconsin on TV, then go watch Cincinnati play East Carolina at Nippert Stadium. Um, if, if you're a major college player, and the University of Cincinnati should be, it's got the facilities, it's got the name coach, uh, You almost, you'll, this almost has to happen for them, for them to remain relevant, does it not? I think so. You know, I think there's really two paths that this conversation could go for Cincinnati is they give them a chance to get into the Big 12. Maybe it's three or four years down the road. But in the meantime, Cincinnati is building up to kind of become that top group of five program right there with Houston and Boise State. You want to position yourself to not only be uh, attractive and winning a lot of games now, but position yourself that to where you get into a Power Five conference 
you can be competitive right away. I, I think Cincinnati would be a great addition uh, to the Big 12. You know, in the meantime, you, know, you want to be that top, 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 top group of five program because if you look at Houston now, they have a chance to, to go back to the, the New Year's Six Bowl once again this year. Boise State has been that team uh, over the last 10 years or so that's always been that top group of five non-power uh, conference team. So I think it really is important that if Cincinnati wants to be in that top tier of college football, they need to get into the Big 12 just because the divide of money uh, among TV and everything revenue is so big between Power 5 and Group of 5. But I do think in the meantime, if you're Cincinnati, just position yourself to be uh, the best program that you can be in the meantime Mm -hmm. and really go out and and win 10-11 games and push for that American uh, Athletic Conference title every year. Stephen, let's go south of the Ohio River. Let's go to Lexington, Kentucky. Mark Stoops at the University of Kentucky. Uh, This will be his fourth year. You're not saying he's on the hot seat, but he has had back-to-back five and seven seasons at a school that's been rather impatient lately with its head football coaches. Where do you think Stoops is in getting this program over that uh, that 500 level? Can he exceed six and six this year? Where do you see where do you see Stoops and the University of Kentucky? You have Stoops at number 83 right now. I think this is you know a, a critical year for for Mark Stoops. You know, I, I think you kind of said it best there. I don't think he's on the hot seat yet, but I think he's moving a little bit closer to that, you know, maybe in the, the getting warm category. I think Kentucky, when Mark Stoops took it over, this was a program that needed a lot of help, whether it was talent level, uh, pretty much anything, facilities, you name it. They've taken steps forward over the last couple of years. But I think as we saw last season, they started fast, but they couldn't finish. At the end of the year, when they had a couple opportunities to get bowl eligible, uh, whether it was against Vanderbilt and against Louisville, they just couldn't get over that hump. And I think that's the challenge for Mark Stoops this year is to take Kentucky from five and seven to six and six or seven and five. I actually think their schedule sets, sets up for a run to a bowl game this year. I mean, they get Vanderbilt, not to mention uh, South Carolina at home. Those are two critical swing games in SEC play. Kentucky's talent level has improved. Mark Stoops is doing a good job on the recruiting trail. They've got a big-time quarterback prospect in Drew Barker, like the addition of Eddie Grant, uh, the new play caller, and they have some playmakers. But the, the biggest question for Mark Stoops is going to be the defensive side of the ball, uh, which is four starters back. So I think Kentucky's moving in the right direction. They're not moving in the, in the right direction fast. But if they can get to 6-6 six and six this year, I think that will sort of quiet some of the hot seat talk around Mark Stoops. Stephen Lassen, Athlon Sports, our guest. He has ranked the college football coaches in America 1 through 128. Uh, let's go to the top of the list. Mark Stoops' brother at Oklahoma is 5. Mark D'Antonio, who used to coach at UC, is 4. Jim Harbaugh from Michigan is 3rd on your list. Urban Meyer is 2. And Nick Saban is 1. Other than Jim Harbaugh, it's kind of like the usual suspects are Stoops, and Myers, uh, Meyer, and uh, and Saban and D'Antonio are they are they ranked that high because of the schools they're at and their perennial powers, or are their schools perennial powers because of the coaches they have? I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I think hierarchy in college football is something that maybe doesn't get talked about enough because you know, it's a lot easier to win ten or eleven games at a place like Alabama. Uh, the pressure is enormous to win. There's no doubt about it. You know, Alabama. The expectation level every year is to, to win the national championship. But your resources and facilities and money and, and recruiting is so much greater and so much better than it is at a place like Kentucky or a place like Vanderbilt. So when we put together these coach rankings, 
every year. We try to evaluate each coach based upon the success level that they've had. You know, we try not to rank coaches just necessarily based upon how many wins and how many championships they have, but it does matter. You're trying to evaluate uh, their ability to, you know, not only X's and O's, but recruit and, and all the other things that go into it. And, of course, it's kind of our subjective take. You know, if, if we're an athletic director and we know every coach in America is on the board and we can hire, we look at their success level and we look at kind of if everything was equal, who would we hire? And I think when you look at the top five, for us, Nick Saban and Urban Meyer were one and two, no doubt about it. There really wasn't much uh, debate there. The debate three through seven or eight was, was pretty intense. You know, we had some thoughts of maybe putting – uh, Mark D'Antonio over Jim Harbaugh. Mm-hmm. I think D'Antonio is one of those coaches you can look at and say, he's really transformed Michigan yeah. State into a, a top 10 uh, team every year. On the other hand, for Oklahoma, a lot more resources. You know, Oklahoma usually uh, can to national championships, and I think Mark D'Antonio has done a much better job of just elevating the program. Can't wait. College football is on the horizon. You know it is. If we're talking Athlon, it is Stephen Lassen. You can check out online his college football coach rankings, 1 through 128. Stephen, thanks for your time today here on 700 WLW. Hey, Kent, anytime. Good to talk to you. And, of course, the season begins here later this summer. The game's right here on 700 WLW. UC football. Maybe by the end of the summer we'll have some news on the Big 12 conference. Yeah, you never know. Yeah, those I think I think they're they're out they're baking in the summer summer heat out there in the southwest. We'll see if it bakes any brains into them. Seven four nine seven thousand one eight hundred. The big one pound seven hundred on AT and T. Ten forty five on this Sunday morning. Glad you're with us. We'll continue next on the home of your Cincinnati Reds. Seven hundred WLW. on this Sunday morning. Good morning. Going to get into some uh, trade talk in the next hour. I mean, let's face it, the Reds are going to have to deal, and and the most likely prospects are going to deal, or most likely players are going to deal, are going to be Zach Cozart and Jay Bruce. I'm going to get into Jay Bruce and his his wealth, his value with uh, Eno Saris of Fangraphs.com. But I'm, I'm, I'm looking at an article that was written here. When was this written? This week, uh, by Major League Baseball trade rumors, MLBTradeRumors.com, and looking for matchups in a Zach Cozart trade. Uh, Cozart is not an expensive player. He's making just under $3 million this year, and he has a year of arbitration eligibility left before free agency would kick in. So if you traded Cozart, you would get the rest of this year and all of next year and still have a chance to sign him at free agency. But they're, 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 they're listing the Royals, the Mariners, and the White Sox as likely trading partners for the, uh, for the Reds. And uh, I just don't see any of them being a matchup. The, the, the Royals have their own prospect. They also have um, Alcides Escobar, who is not having a good year. The, the, the Mariners... They had Ketel Marte, who thought he'd be a you know the guy this year, but he struggled. I, I, he's not hitting, and then you have the White Sox. Well, I'm looking at what the Royals could offer you back for a a shortstop. They have Raul Mondesi Jr. I, I don't think they're going to give up him. And then after that, it's a lot of pitching. 
And the Reds have a lot of pitching that they've gotten in recent trades. Uh, same with, if you look at uh, at what could be could be offered here by some of these other teams, I just don't, I just don't see that the market for for Cozart would be all that overwhelmingly great. And the same for Bruce. Uh, Bruce has been linked to the Indians. The Indians' best prospects are outfielders, Bradley Zimmer and Clint Frazier, and neither one of them are hitting the ball all that well at double-A. In fact, Zimmer's hitting 240 at double-A, 13 home runs, 46 RBIs, so the power numbers there aren't bad, but 240 at double-A, you know what? That's, that, that's a really bad number for a guy that you're going to trade the hottest commodity on the trade market for. Frazier's also at double-A. He's hitting, I think he's hitting like 280 and very, very low power numbers. Both project to be in the majors next year, but Frazier's got power issues and Zimmer's got average issues. And then after that, you're into deeper prospects. So I, I just don't see how it, how the Reds are going to have a good, easy time connecting the dots on either Cozart or or Bruce, but we'll get into that with Saros in the next uh, in the next hour. Haven't been to the phones. Let's go to the phones. Paul is in Westchester. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ken. I have, uh, I'm glad you got back to the Andy Dalton story. Yeah. Uh, it's been going on for six months. Uh, my concern is that uh, Andy's never going to be the same. Uh, when you look at the replay, if his hand was just flat on the ground and a lineman stepped on his hand to break his thumb, that's one thing. But he kind of sticks his hand you know, in a black hole there. Mm-hmm. You don't know how much damage he did to his ligaments. And if you hold your palm up, you can move your thumb in a big circle. Mm-hmm. And you need to do that to grip the ball, to throw it. Yeah. Well, I, I, he, he, he's gone through a mini camp, but apparently he's okay. I mean, he's, but, he's, he's gone through OTAs, and apparently he's okay. What, what is your... What's your fear, that he's not going to be able to grip a football? Well, that he may not have as good a spiral. He may not be able to wing it 40 yards down the the field as good as he used to, that sort of thing. So if it is some ligament damage, you can't really tie those tiny ligaments back together. Yeah, the muscle strength may be there, but maybe you won't be able to hold that position of the thumb making a good spiral on, you know, his follow-through and all that. Well, we're going to find, we're going to find out fairly exactly. soon, right? I mean, by the time they get to camp here in the next three or four weeks, four weeks, we're going to know whether or not he can do that. No one seems to be real concerned about it there. In fact, you're the first phone call that I've had, Paul, from anyone that's concerned about whether or not he can grip a football. I think he either will or he won't. But the doctors that pieced his thumb back together again seem to think he will. Paul, thanks for the phone call. We'll continue next on 700 WLW. Now, The Big One presents Sunday Morning Sports Talk with your host, Ken Brew, on 700 WLW, The Big One. Hey, welcome back. It's 11.07 as we cruise on till noon. That rascal Mo Egger is in here at noon to get you ready for Reds baseball. We're going to talk about the most overrated players on every NFL team in just a moment. But I saw this on Pro Football Talk this morning, and I want to just mention it briefly. Apparently, and I was unaware of this, that there was some sort of survey put out where you could vote 
about what games, what NFL classic games you would like to see the NFL put on YouTube. I guess apparently free for charge. Anyway, a list of of games that you voted on for your team to be put up free of charge. Not games that are coming up this season, but games in your team's history. Complete games. They said they surveyed fans for about a month, and these games are going to be uploaded next month to the YouTube channel that the NFL has. All 32 teams... Let their fans vote on three full games they'd like to see featuring their favorite team. There are a lot of Super Bowls that are up there. In fact, of the, I think there's 99 games. Of the 99 games, there's 25 Super Bowls that are up there. But for your Cincinnati Bengals, guess which three games are up there? Week 2015 season, when the Bengals beat The Seahawks, Andy Dalton leads a fourth-quarter comeback. That's game one. 32% of you voted for that. 31% of you voted for the 1981 AFC Championship game, the Freezer Bowl. And the third game that you voted for, that you want to see, of all the games in the history of the Cincinnati Bengals, Week 11, 2003, Bengals against the Chiefs. The Chiefs come in here unbeaten, and the Bengals beat them. So you get to see those three free on YouTube next month. Now, I'm not going to run down every team in the NFL. You can find that easily enough. Uh, of the Browns, they, they're, they're a division championship game from 1988, a week five game against the Titans, which was, in their opinion, the greatest comeback in Browns history. Browns came back and beat the Titans 29-28. And then a 1989 divisional playoff game against the Bills, which the Browns won 34-30. I think it's, it's interesting that in the AFC West, among the games that the Denver Bronco fans want to see, 1986 AFC Championship game, which forevermore has been known as the drive. So there you go next month on profootballtalk.com and uh, next month on YouTube. All right, so Bill Bender is a buddy of mine. I want to say that straight up. He's a good writer. He writes for the sportingnews.com, and he covers a lot of different and varied things. As I said about an hour ago on a different topic, when you're writing about football in this day, in July, before camps begin, you're using a lot of different mechanisms to get readers. Best of, worst of, greatest of all time, worst of all time. So I'm reading this thing on the sportingnews.com this week, which, by the way, you should have on your tablet, your iPhone, whatever it may be. Bender writes the story on the most overrated players on every NFL roster since 2000. The qualifier is it's since 2000. Most overrated players since 2000. But I'm looking at this list, and there's some names on there that I think, you know, maybe I would not have put on my list. But he's a good Ohio University guy, and I thought, well, let's get him on and explain his point. So without further ado, the most overrated players on every NFL roster since 2000, as authored by former Bobcat Bill Bender. Bill, good morning. Thanks for joining us. 
Oh, it's always good to talk to another Ohio University graduate, and uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. When two Ohio University graduates get together in one room, the FBI normally shows up. They think it's some sort of conspiracy. So thanks, thank goodness we're doing this by phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, hope it's, I hope it's not tapped. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be a good year for them. But, uh, you know, exciting time for us. It is. Most overrated players since 2000. You have your list out for all 32 teams uh drew bledsoe think about this guy you've got him the most overrated in the history of the buffalo bills and he also has what happened to him in new england now i know the guy's making wine now and making millions of dollars doing that but think about that you're the most overrated player in on one franchise and on the other franchise they were they were happy as hell to see you go because they had tom brady yeah i mean this was a really tough list to put together because overrated such a subjective term but you know, you look at the quarterback play in Buffalo, and I kind of looked at his numbers. He had the one year, and then he, he unceremoniously left there, too. Remember what he said when he was heading out the door to Dallas? He couldn't wait to get his kids in the star. So, uh, you know, for a player as talented as he was, maybe he was a touch overrated in Buffalo. Now, you're an Ohio boy, and in Cleveland you've got Kellen Winslow. And, again, this list is since 2000. Kellen Winslow had 11 touchdowns, I think, in five years with the Browns. But the Browns, is it's such a treasure trove of overrated players up there. How did you settle on Kellen Winslow? You know, I got him. I could have gone Braylon. I mm. thought about Manziel for a moment, but he wasn't overrated. He never did anything. Right, so, and it was too easy if you went with him. Yeah, so I kind of went with a player. I remember that, you know, Winslow was a tight end that they drafted really high, and the expectations were so high given what he did in college, you know, given what his dad did, too. Um that I thought he was a touch overrated from the start, and then he got into some trouble. And, you know, for a player of his ability, he just didn't do that much on the field. Yeah, yeah. So so Kellen Winslow gets your, your nod in Cleveland. As you know, all things in Cincinnati fold, fold back to Cincinnati. Dallas, you've got both Roy Williams, the safety, and Roy Williams, the wide receiver, tied for most overrated. We, of course, got Roy Williams, the safety, down here in Cincinnati for about two or three minutes. Yeah, I mean, both of those guys came with a lot of hype. I, I think especially the receiver, personally, for given what they gave to get him from Detroit. Um, the uh, safety, Roy Williams, was just known for horse collar tackling. And, and again, this was kind of – I could have taken the easy route and taken Tony Romo, but I don't think he's overrated or underrated. I just think he's rated. So, uh, mm. you know, between the two, Williamses – and Dallas had plenty of choices, too. Uh, I've got some issues here with you, though, Bill. I've got to be honest with you. you got in Tampa, you have Dexter Jackson. Now, they had a guy down there, number one pick. I think they took him in 2004, Michael Clayton. He had seven touchdowns total, three in the last five years of his existence as a Buccaneer. How did Michael Clayton not, you know, take Dexter Jackson's place on this list? That's another one. I mean, well, Michael Clayton, you could just – this is the hard part, Ken, is, is determining what's overrated versus what's – he's just a buck. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple other guys like that. I mean, another one that came to mind was Oakland's Robert Gallery. He, with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Just a bug. Yeah. So for Dexter Jackson, a Super Bowl MVP, but if you look at his numbers, it's really nothing special. He kind of lived off that Super Bowl MVP performance. 
I would imagine you're getting some feedback from New England Patriot fans because you've got Wes Welker as your most overrated New England Patriot since 2000. Now, you and I both know the numbers. They're great. Why Wes Welker? Was Wes Welker really overrated? I just think he they've found a guy that can do what he does. I mean, it's part of a system thing, and I'm really hard on wide receivers. This list probably reflects that. I think I'm really hard on possession receivers because I'm just a guy that's saying, well, anybody could do that, and, they, and they've proven that with Edelman and uh, Almondola to some level. But the Patriots were a hard team to pick because they've been awesome. They have so many yeah. good players that, I mean, was I going to pick on a Teddy Brewski or go after Lawyer Malloy? I didn't. I just kind of thought Welker was taking a chance. And, you know, if you look what he did afterward, he didn't do much. You know, and the Patriots are tough to pick anyway because it really doesn't matter who you are if you're not Tom Brady. They have a knack of finding a player that can do roughly the same thing and plug him in when a guy leaves. And as you said, they had no trouble replacing Welker. Uh, Aaron, Aaron Hernandez, they've had no real trouble, zero trouble replacing him. So when you get to teams that have these kinds of systems, Pittsburgh would be another example. I think it's difficult to look at a player and say, is he overrated, is he underrated, or is he just a guy that works well inside that system? Yeah, and Mike DeCourcy, another friend of yours, obviously, on that one because he's a Steelers fan. And I originally had Santonio Holmes, and he kind of overruled me. He said, why don't you go with Pouncey? And uh, so I'm I'm obviously passing the buck on Mike here. Um, But... uh, um, you know, they had some tough choices, too. I mean, Mike Wallace was another one that kind of jumped out. He didn't – what has he done since he left Pittsburgh? And, uh, you know, but I ended up going with Pouncey simply because their offense really hasn't missed a beat when he's left the, the field, even though he is a very good player. We're chatting with Bill Bender, thesportingnews.com. He has a list out, most overrated players for each franchise since 2000. And that then, Mike, uh, Bill, brings us to the Cincinnati Bengals. T.J. Hushmanzada. Uh, again, he falls into what you were just talking about, possession receiver, guys that are easy to replace. But for many, many years here, when Ocho Cinco couldn't remember what route to run, Hushman Sada was Carson Palmer's best friend. That's a little rough on TJ, is it? A little rough? Yeah, I think I, I, that is some feedback I've been getting that, you know, he was a late-round draft pick, so if anything, he was an overachiever. But, you know, I kind of looked at it the other way that, you know, Chad was such a dynamic player at that point where he was leading the league in the NFL, you know, receiving yards, doing the things that he was doing, and, and Hush kind of benefited from that. But maybe I'm seeing it a little differently. And, and, Ken, I know there were other choices. I know one of my buddies was kind of pushing for uh, Leon Hall or Ray Maluga, and yeah. I like both of those guys. I, yeah. I think Maluga's actually improved with each season, even though he got yeah. off to a little bit of a rough start. Yeah. I mean, TJ led the league in, in receptions, I think, in 07. You ask a great Trivia question. Name the three teams he played for after Cincinnati. I don't think a lot of people could do that. That's that's part of the reason, too. He just kind of fell off. And, yeah. and again, a good possession receiver. Not a high touchdown guy. You know, he got a lot of, you know, part of the hype he got was from the you know, the old fantasy commercial. I mentioned that. And, mm. um, you know, but a guy that, again, I mean, some people were pushing Andre Smith on me, and they said that one. But I was kind of like, Andre Smith kind of falls into that they drafted him and they kind of realized they drafted him too high and he is what he is yeah Seattle Baltimore and Oakland by the way if you're wondering at home what teams Hushman Zada reported to and at least spent time with after leaving the Cincinnati Bengals it's fascinating stuff it's right now on the sportingnews.com the most overrated players for each franchise since the year 2000 Bill Bender of the Sporting News wrote it Bill thanks for your time here today on 700 WLW 
Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you. And you know, I mean, when you when when you get right down to it, it's all subjective. Honestly, I would probably. You want to talk about the most overrated Bengals since two thousand? Wouldn't it be Peter Warwick? Drafted him. They draft. Well, what? Wait, hang on, hang on. When they drafted him, was it? He was drafted. At, I think like top ten. Was he not? Wasn't Peter War? I, again, my memory may be fading here, but I I seem to remember when they took him, it was fairly high in that draft. Most touchdowns he ever had in one season was seven. That was in two thousand and three. He didn't catch 3,000 career yards. He didn't. He wound up with something like 2991. My my man Dave says fourth overall in the year 2000. I think, Hushman Zada, I think there's a case you could even make for, for Chad Ochocinco being the most overrated Bengal. Although I contended for many years, and I don't know if I really want to stray from this, that he was the best player on a lot of bad teams that they had here. When you look at Warwick, fourth overall in 2000. And by 2006, he's out of football. Most touchdowns he ever had in six. Most receiving yards he ever had in one year were 819. I'm sorry, most touchdowns, seven. 819 uh, I think if you're going to put T.J. Hushmanzada as most overrated, I think you may want to talk about Peter Work before then. And no, it doesn't have to be position exclusive. It doesn't have to be position exclusive. Well, who else would it be? I mean, I mean, you, I mean, there, there were a lot of candidates. I guess you could choose from. I mean, they had some, shall we say, eclectic drafts there for a while. And a lot of guys that rolled in here and looked like that they were going to be, you know, the next great thing, and they they obviously weren't. I think it's I I I mean I could see TJ in a sense that his value was such that when he left here, he really couldn't find value anywhere else. Seattle gave him a great contract, but he really never performed anywhere else after he left here. But I think if you're going to talk about wide receiver, you don't I I think there might be a couple of people ahead of him. How about Antonio Bryant? What do they get? One half of one practice out of that dude for $29 million? I mean, it was ridiculous, wasn't it? 749-7000-1800, the big one. Pound 700 on AT&T. We're back next on the home of the Reds, 700 WLW. 700 WLW. It's going to be wet today. Showers likely. High near 76. Showers and a possible thunderstorm tonight. Some of those storms could produce heavy rainfall. It's going to be heavy, man. Low around 65 tomorrow. Showers and thunderstorms. High near 81. 64 degrees. That's the forecast from your severe weather station. News Radio 700 LW. Come on, America. Tell me about it. First number one hit for Grand Funk Railroad. Written by the drummer Don Brewer. He's doing the lead singing here. 
Actually, the song was produced by rock legend Todd Rundgren. 1973. You see, Brewer and Don Farmer were bouncing around the Flint, Michigan area. Worked with some local bands, got tired of that, dropped out. Discovered a guy named Mel Shacker, which didn't take much of a discovery because Shacker was playing bass in a one-hit wonder band called Question Mark and the Mysterians. And that became Grand Funk Railroad. I just saw a piece of video about a week ago. I'm trolling the YouTubes, you know? 46 years ago this past June, Grand Funk played the Cincinnati Pop Music Festival along with the Stooges and Alice Cooper and Bob Seger and 10 years that They all played at Crosley Field. One of the TV stations tried to make a documentary out of it. They might have for all I know, but there was a, was a clip of video of Grand Funk playing Crosley Field in the summer of 70. I think Mark Farner is some big Christian act right now. It's the rumor. 749-7000, the big one. We're back next. Talk a little Reds trades on 700-WLW. <laughs> 700-WLW, welcome back. Top of the hour, Mo Eggers in. Tonight on 9 on your side, 1135, sports of all sorts. The hero of last night's FC Cincinnati win, Jimmy McLaughlin, joins me in studio. Yes, he does. Mark Simmendinger from the Kentucky Speedway will be there as we break down the important issues that have transpired this week in the world of sports. So all that's coming up uh, tonight on the... Yeah, I'll be down with uh, and uh, and Julie at uh, 6 and 11 as well. 749-7000, the big one, pound uh, 700 on uh, AT&T. You know, we were talking about overrated Bengals, the most o- um my, uh, my man, Big Dave in there, said, what about Delta O'Neal? Dude had one year while he was here. He was here, what, four years? One year, he had 10 interceptions. My guy is Lavernius Coles. Remember that? You want to talk about overrated Bengals? Guy signs a four-year, $28 million contract, plays one year, 43 catches, 514 yards, five touchdowns, and then he's out of football. He is out of football. I think he signed with the, the Jets in, uh, in 2010, and they cut him after a month. The Bengals signed him to this, at the time, a big deal. Four years, $28 million. And they adios him a year to the day that he signs the thing. Vernius <laughs> Coles. I think he said three words to the media while he was here. Let's go to the phones. Al's in Cheviot. Hello, Al. Hey, Ken. How you doing today? All right, Al. I hope you are, too. I, I'm going to take you off the speakerphone. Oh, good. Yeah, because I sound horrible on this thing. <laughs> First of all, Ken, I want to thank you. I, I, I've been listening to you the last couple of weeks. I didn't call in. I was down in uh, Florida. I had a family emergency. Oh. And uh, just listening to you 
wax philosophically about the Cincinnati Reds gave me a great amount of humor. I chuckled all both <laughs> <over> days. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad I got. I'm glad every. I'm glad that worked out, Alan. I hope everything's okay with you. Uh, Paul Brown, the best coach the Bengals ever had. I would agree with that. He took them to the playoffs in three years mm-hmm. from expansion team. Right. With Virgil Carter as the quarterback. Right. And what would have happened if Greg Cook hadn't got hurt? There you go. You know, Greg- With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, Cook doesn't get hurt. Ken Anderson never comes here. That's exactly right. But even when Ken Anderson came, the West Coast offense was developed here in Cincinnati. Yeah. With uh, Bill Walsh. Now, Paul Brown's shortcoming was he took everything personal, you know. Yeah. When Bill Walsh was interviewing for San Francisco, he was like, if you want to go, go. And he let him go. Yeah. And, and that would have changed the fortunes of, of this ball club. But my, my whole thing at the beginning was the best quarterback-head coach combo in the history of this franchise because they rate Marvin and, uh, and Andy Dalton the 11th best in the NFL right now, this is USA Today, mine was the best ever in this franchise history. Not the best coach, not the best quarterback, but the best quarterback-coach combo. And I don't think Paul Brown and Kenny Anderson worked together long enough to say that would be the best. I, they, I think they I, – I don't have it in front of me, but I, I think they only worked right. together like two or three years. Three years. And remember the, the third year, Ken Anderson was like hurt. He missed like like the first eight games yeah. or something like that. Right. The second thing is, Urban Meyer is the best coach in college football. I don't even know how Harbaugh get into that conversation. Yeah, oh, he was factoring other things in, like how you pay your assistants, what kind of coordinators you have, what kind of facilities you have, how many years of success have you had as a coach while at not just that school but any place else you've been. Well, I thought he was a little I thought he was a little bit of a surprise at number three as well. Yeah, yeah. But I figured that it's this is like that Ohio University thing. I didn't graduate from Ohio University, so I don't know. But I figured that you guys were like on the same page, you know what I'm saying? No, no. Well I th- I think he had uh, I think he had uh Al thanks for the call. I think he had Solich sixty nine. But no, there's no conspiracy there. All right, when we come back Eno Saris, Fangraphs.com, is going to join us. What can the Reds realistically expect if they trade Jay Bruce? And why is there so much clamoring around here to keep the guy? Where's that coming from? Well, we continue next on 700 WLW. 700 WLW, welcome back to the show. Most overrated Bengal thing is uh, bringing back names of Players that even I've forgotten. They're bringing back names of players we all should have forgotten. Adam tweets, maybe I missed it, but how has Kenny Irons or Tab Perry not been mentioned? I don't think Irons never played, right? He blew his knee out, and then Perry, I think, played a handful of games and had a bad hip. There have been a lot of them. 
seven four nine seven thousand. So, all right. So, uh, the Major League Baseball trade deadline is August the first. It's a day later this year, but there's no question that Jay Bruce is the most desirable uh, trade bait that's out there right now. And I know these things are fluid, and Bruce can go south on us at any time. He's proven that. But right now, if you're looking at the trade horizon, Bruce has got to be, in my opinion, he's number one. It, it, I think arguably. He's top five of players that other teams that need an outfielder would want. Uh, and I'm just wondering what the, the, the Reds and the fans here could expect for Bruce in a return in a deal here in the next month. So I wanted to get Eno Saris on the show from Fangraphs.com before we're done here this morning. Eno, of course, works as one of the editors there and has great chats with fans and understands this game, drills it down deeper as well as anybody that I know. And he's graciously uh, accepted an invitation to join us here on 700 WLW. You know, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Good. Hey, um, listen, the Reds have shown a little bit more life in the last couple of weeks than they did earlier in the season. But we all know it's going to be a few more years before they really are good. You know, there's some fans in this town, actually I think a significant number of fans in this town, who believe the Reds, despite their current status, should not only keep Jay Bruce for the rest of the season, but also pick up his option for next year, which I think is $13.5 million. Where are you on not just this specific case, but in a larger sense, holding on to a higher-priced player whose team is still years away from becoming a contender again? I'm a little surprised to hear that because it seems like those people weren't around for the last two years. (laughs) I mean, uh, we saw a whole nother Jay Bruce for a while there. And, you know, yeah, some of it might be him finally getting healthy from, you know, that knee that knee problem that he had. But I don't think he's playing a little bit over his head, first of all. So anytime you look at him now, this is going to be a power peak for him, which is a little bit weird uh, to have at 29 years old. And, um, you know, he just doesn't offer any value when it comes to uh, the defensive side of the ball. So it makes it very hard to, you know, make plans that include him in it, I think. I think he's more destined for the American League where he can be someone's uh, fine DH. I mean, I think he can be 10 to 15% better than league average. But I don't think that's worth that sort of money that you're talking about. I don't think it's a great fit on a National League team. And, uh, you know, they they still, you know, after all that, I, I like all the pitching that they went out and got. They still need more pitching. You know, not all those guys worked out. Uh, and, um, you know, with injury and stuff like that, I think they still need to go get more pitching. So I think uh, I would trade Trey J. Bruce in a second. I think that uh, he's going to be more valuable in the American team. Yeah, well, that doesn't bode well if this team needs more pitching. They seem to have found a lot of pitching in the last off season. Um, they seem to have found a left fielder in Adam Duvall. They have long-term issues at second base. They don't have an everyday catcher at this point, and the book is still out, I think, as to whether or not Eugenio Suarez is the answer at third. So if you're saying trade for pitching, this rebuilding may be more intricate than a lot of, he- a lot of people here think. Yeah, you know, I thought I really liked the pitching group they brought together. Uh, the, the problem has just been but they haven't really worked out. Finnegan's velocity drops, you know, a little bit more than you might expect going to the rotation. The changeup has been worse than I expected. I really loved Iglesias and thought he, they had basically an ace in him. But, 
you know, these, these shoulder problems have been, have been an issue. John Lamb, I don't think the jury's done on him yet, but, um, you know, not quite what we thought. Scafani, I think, could be a two to Iglesias' one if Iglesias is healthy. So there's, there's still some stuff there that's okay, but I disagree a little bit about some of the characterizations. I, I like Eugenio Suarez. I think he can be a good third baseman. I think that's fine. I think him, Cozart, that's a fine left side of the, uh, of the diamond. You've still got Votto for a while. Billy Hamilton can at least play defense, and I think he's showing a little bit more with the bat this year. You've got to evolve. So there's, there's some pieces. And catchers, you know, to me, I would just get a good framer, get a good defensive catcher and whatever they can do on offense. Tucker Barnhart seems fine to me. I'm not so worried about getting offense from catchers. So I think it's still about pitching, and yet, you know, there's still a chance that this could, this could right ship. I mean, Stevenson figures something out. Uh, some of the other Cody Reed looks amazing. I think Cody Reed is great. So, you know, they've got some pieces, and I think Jay Bruce could could bring a couple more pitchers to to give him a couple more lotto tickets. Maybe maybe get a pitcher and a hitter, but you know, you can't get too you can't get your wide wide too wide open with Jay Bruce. I mean, he, the, the White Sox could have gone and got and get him, but they haven't gotten him yet. And that, there's not too many suitors left. I think. Yeah. Chatting with Eno Saris, Fangraphs.com. Okay, let's say for the moment that Bruce is the bait and pitching is what you're trolling for. He's at his zenith. He hasn't played this well in the last two years. Are you are you the rabbit in the market now? Do you try to set the market, or do you let the market come back to you if you're trying to trade Jay? I think I'd be proactive. You know, he's worth more now. He, every day that goes by, he's worth less to, to the other team. So just to go out and engage teams and try to see, you know, what they need and, and if Bruce could be helpful, I think that would be the, the best ticket there. I mean, because you'll get more teams. The reason that you get more in season is because teams know they're competitive in the in, in season. But, um, you know, if you can do it now, then you can give them an extra month of, of yeah. value from their player. Yeah, and, you know, listen, I hear what you're saying. Even if this works out, even if Suarez is the long-term answer at third, and if they can just get a catcher who can frame the strike zone, and if that's Tucker Barnhart, great. Even if they get this good pitching for Bruce, given the fact they play in the same division as the Cubs and Cardinals, this this is this is going to be a long way back. Yeah, I don't know. I, these things seem so bleak, and then all of a sudden, one of the guys you drafted, you know, figures something out or comes up. Maybe there's a find in your in your in just a guy that nobody thought about that all of a sudden is pitching lights out. So that's why I would get more lotto tickets for pitching because if the glass his shoulder got right, you know, it's just this Cafani, you know, refound those strikeouts when he was throwing out the slider and the curve. If if Cody Reed is a really, you know, top two, three, you know, rotation guy, I think he can be a front of the rotation guy. You could build this team in a slightly different way and then all of a sudden catcher doesn't matter so much. If you build it on a good starting rotation and you bring that to Wrigley Field, then all of a sudden you, you, you have a chance to, to negate the Cubs' best strength. And, you know, the Reds play in a park that, you know, skews offensively. If you had a great pitching staff, the, the team could use the park in a way to, to cobble together runs. You know, Adam Duvall, you know, why don't you go out and hit 35 homers? I know you're not going to take a lot of walks, but those 35 homers, Hamilton's speed, you know, Suarez in between, you know, and then maybe use some of the Brandon Phillips savings when he, when the contract is finally over. You know, they can probably actually sign a you know a guy uh, on offense or one pitcher. You know, when they're good. So I, I think it's all about you know going and getting some some pitching prospects. 
hitting prospects also people don't trade them. And I don't think that Dave Roos is of the quality that someone would trade a, a hitting prospect for him. You can go get Julio Teron right now. And in order to get Julio Teron, who is under market value for four, four more years or three more years, that might require a hitting prospect. But a year and a half of Jay Bruce with no defense, I don't think that's going to get you, you know, a top 10 hitting prospect. I don't even think it gets you like a Javier Baez type. So, um, you know, I, I think that uh, people might be overvaluing Jay Bruce in this situation. I think most people consider him a, a sort of a one or two dimensional player, which is definitely not, a, you know, like a everyday player in the national yeah. league. Yeah. Yeah. Eno Saris. Well, I hope you're right. Eno Saris. Uh, you can read him right now on Fangraphs.com. Thank you, Eno. And there will be better days, I promise. <laughs> well, yes, we hope so. Eno Saris, Fangraphs.com. My guess is, if you go by track record, the Reds are reactive, not proactive. I mean, that's just been the track record, right? They always seem to let the market come to them. Waited till the end, basically last year, right, with Cueto and Leak, did they not? My guess is they're reactive. But my also guess is is that Zach Cozart and Jay Bruce will not be with this team past August the 1st. And if it doesn't come to pass, you know where to find me. Mo Egger is next. I'll see you tonight at 6 and 11 and at 11.35 on Meyer Sports of All Sorts on Cincinnati's 9 on Your Side. And right back here next Sunday morning at 9 a.m. on the home of the Red 700 WLW. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.